Welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree. This is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. I had the great privilege to speak to Steve McIntosh today. Uh, Steve is from uh, Boulder, Colorado. He's a philosopher, um, entrepreneur, uh, and all-round interesting guy with many different interests. Um, And uh, he's written some great books, including uh, Integral Consciousness, The Presence of the Infinite, uh, Evolution's Purpose, and Developmental Politics. And today we talked about virtue practice. So this is basically cultivating positive character traits um, as an actual practice, uh, creating a a virtuous circle, an updraft of positive feedback loops that makes us better people. The classic seven virtues that have been part of our human story, particularly in the Western world uh, for the last thousand years. Uh, Justice, temperance, which you could call self-mastery, prudence, which you could also call practical wisdom, courage, hope, faith, and love. So Steve McIntosh, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. Thank you, Ralph. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. And I, uh, this is a a great moment for me because I've been following your work um since about 2007 so a long time we've had uh, a couple of email exchanges over the years about a few things um you know, one of the nice things about the age we live in is you can read someone's book find their email address write them a message and say thanks for writing this great book um i think you know i've done that a couple of times to you and uh, some uh responded to a podcast episode you did uh and um Yeah. And then so recently I was reading your book, Developmental Politics. um, And within that book, there was this uh, whole section devoted to virtues and the development of virtues and these seven classic virtues. And that's what I was hoping to explore um, today. But the the first thing um, before we get into that is you, you are a philosopher in this kind of broad category of what you might call integral philosophy or the philosophy of of integrating uh, many disciplines and tying things together. And that's really reflected in your life, your personal life. And uh, as far as I know, just from, you know, following your work over the years, you're a philosopher, you've been a competitive cyclist. Uh, Is it yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was a category one road racer in my youth. Yeah. Um, and you ran a, a, a business called Now and Zen, which I love the title. Uh, Thanks. I stepped down as the CEO of that company in 2012 to devote myself to um, the, the um, political think tank uh, that I'm president of. Um, yeah. But I have had experience in creating a successful business. And um, I think you know, in the background, part of my journey. Is that one of your products, the clock in the background? Yeah, yeah, the triangle clock. I invented and patented that. And, you know, we sold about a million of them. And uh, it was a very popular uh, kind of hardwood art clock that wakes users with an acoustic chime that gradually increases in frequency over 10 minutes. The Zen alarm clock, uh, yeah. we called it. I mean, you know, in 95, when we started the company, 
Um, I was hoping to create something that was uh, indicative of a, a kind of a spiritual renaissance art movement, you know, in the same way that the Tiffany lamp was an appliance, but at the same time, it was also an artifact of Art Nouveau. Um, you know, I, I wanted to try to intuit the aesthetics of what was emerging in the 90s. And, um, you know, ultimately, the art movement that I'd hoped to intuit and contribute to never really uh, materialized. But that same um, that same effort to try to discover where kind of the Renaissance energy was coming from led me to integral philosophy, which I think is what I was kind of groping toward uh, when I started the company. Mm. Um, but but anyway, you know, now and then um, it, it, it gave me an appreciation for entrepreneurship and business and um, how we can make uh, the business world more conscious, you know, we can build on it. Um, so that's part of, you know, being pro-business, but at the same time being a progressive person, um, you know, is, is part of the uh, mix of, you know, my viewpoint at the moment. Yeah. And I, I think it says a lot about a person to have an idea, a concept, and then actually bring that out into the world as an actual physical product, manufacturing, all of that stuff, you know, because um, quite often people think of philosophers as just sitting there thinking stuff and uh you know armchair uh, people yeah. yeah 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 um well now i'm trying to do uh is this worth mentioning in this context that um in the same way that i um created this manufacturing you know consumer product company to try to bring uh the ideas of spiritual art into the culture uh, i'm doing something very similar now i've been doing it for close to 10 years and that is um this work of the institute for cultural evolution think tank a uh, political think tank which is working to help overcome uh, hyperpolarization and the culture war uh, in the United States, and you know, hopefully, it will be influential elsewhere. But the think tank uh, is is really um, got a lot of momentum now. Uh, since the book Developmental Politics came out, uh, I've had a lot of uh, folks uh, interested in supporting this larger vision, and they've joined the board, and we've increased our financial support and hired executives, and so the think tank's going great guns at the moment, and. and um, you know, uh, uh, I'm I'm grateful that uh, that this ability to manifest things is something that I've worked on developing all my life, and so it's kind of a nice intersection of the philosophical and the um, you know the practical. Yeah, and the, yeah, so the cult, the 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 cultural evolution um, think tank, the Institute of Cultural Evolution, is fantastic. I've been on the website. Um, and one of the things we're going to look at today is is one is an exercise you've got on there. I've got here. It's called the portrait of the good. Uh, it's to do with these virtue practices. Um, that's an exercise that's on there. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Um, Great. And yeah, some of the other things uh, that I've noticed that that you've you've done in your life is um, you I, you may be retired now, but you've certainly been a lawyer. I practice law. For a few years, I have a law degree, uh, and um, that was, you know, part of the credibility credibility building part of my education um, that allowed me to be an entrepreneur and be credible enough for, you know, banks to loan me money, <laughs> investors to uh, invest in my company. So, yeah, law is was was a great um, training, but that's uh, you know I haven't practiced law since uh, 1989. So it's oh, been okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you're an author. You've written some great books, uh, all of which I've read. Um, off the top of my head, we got Integral Consciousness, Evolution's Purpose, The Presence of the Infinite, and Developmental Politics. Have I missed yeah. it? 
yeah, those are the books um, that I've written on my own. I also co-authored um, the most recent book, uh, Conscious Leadership, which oh, I co-authored yeah. with Carter Phipps and uh, John Mackey, the founder and CEO of Whole, Whole Foods Market. So that was a more of a commercial book, but um, it's it's definitely helped the other books. Yeah. And then um, Wilderness Explorer. Sure. <laughs> well, uh, both the internal and the external adventure. Yeah. Uh, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. And I mean, that takes me on to the last one I wanted to mention, uh, which is uh, psychedelics enthusiast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's not something that's, you know, it's, you know, I'm focused primarily in my work on uh, uh, what you might call spiritual practice, what we're going to talk about today, mm. and then um, political reform and renewal and, and you know, the, the helping America grow into a better version of itself, which is the subtitle of uh, developmental politics. But uh, uh, psychedelics have been a part of my spiritual practice all my life. Uh, it isn't something that I'm, you know, in the marketplace of ideas uh, championing with any energy. Um, but uh, I think it would be a disservice to my readers to, to not disclose in a way that this has been an important part of my own personal development. You know, it's, it's not, a, I don't think it works as a spiritual path by itself, at least not for me, but as a supplement to other spiritual practices and uh, communities of, of spiritual um, uh, faith, I guess you might call it, uh, uh, psychedelics have been um, an important part of my journey. And, you know, we can talk about that if you like, but that's not the main thrust of, of what I'm writing about. No, no. I mean, the reason why I bring that up is um, it's something I talk a lot about on my podcast. It's been a big part of my spiritual practice for 30 years. Um, and um, you did a really good podcast episode with Jeff Salzman on the Daily Evolver about psychedelics, which I think you called it was something about this about the spirit of adventurism, you know, being 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 adventurous in your life and courageous. I mean, it takes a lot of guts to to do these things anyway. So because it was I just refer people to that conversation if they want to find out more about that. Um, and that was actually one of the times I reached out to you because I listened to that podcast and I thought, great. Um, what a the, the title is the spiritual adventures of, of psychedelics and wilderness um, and I talk about the, the psychedelic journeys as a kind of a, a adventure in the internal universe and um, wilderness experience as a, and as an adventure in the external universe sometimes done together but but also independently and how there are many similarities that people may not um, normally associate with those two things so that's sort of the premise of that podcast. But in it, I tried to recount a phenomenological experience of every different type of substance and medicine that I've done. Um, and I think a lot of people appreciated that because, um, you know, it, it's good to take a philosophical view on what it is that these, these psychedelic experiences afford in terms of our being able to step outside our normal mind and, you know, view the world and our lives while our egos are temporarily dissolved yeah and um i mean so the reason why i just wanted to paint this picture is that for for people listening i think you represent very much you know what m my podcast is about and this kind of um you know i i'm very pro being generalist you know and, and interested in many different things and how these kind of work together to make uh, you know it's living in technicolor or you know and we've it's kind of 
um, you know, there's this very much this opposite, opposing current of specialization. Um, and uh, I mean, years ago in the 90s, I read E.O. Wilson's book, Consilience, which is a kind of um, a, an early recognition of that problem of this kind of siloing of all these disciplines and then they don't talk to each other and um, you end up with people who are very very clever uh, in one particular thing but really they, they, kind of, they can be complete idiots in their life <laughs> so um, yeah that's one way to put it <laughs> yeah so you know it's, I just wanted to, to kind of paint that picture of, of, of who you are as you've appeared to me um, as someone who's appreciated your work and, um, you know, to give some kind of context for where these ideas we're going to explore have come through in your own life, you know, that you're, um, uh, is a polymath the right word for it, I suppose? Or that a bit <laughs> grandiose? Sure, I'll take it, <laughs> whatever label you want to right. throw off. Yeah. So the, the reason why, so I was reading your book, Developmental Politics, which is about, uh, the problems with uh, politics in America very much apply to uh, the political situation in, in, in England and where I live and, and Europe. But uh, in it, it's, a, it's about um, evolution and growth. And there's this section in there about developing virtues, the, the classic seven virtues. And that kind of leapt out to me when I was reading it as like, oh, this is really interesting because uh, as a as a spiritual practice, because the the via negativa, which is all about deconditioning yourself, is probably maybe the dominant mode of spiritual. It's kind of Eastern spiritual practice that uh, you know is around in the spiritual but not religious kind of movement. Progressive people, um, you know, it's about um just uh you know letting go of your conditioning and then finding what remains um because there is something which um is isn't conditioned that you, even when you get rid of everything inside yourself there's something that remains that's very interesting what that something is is it ineffable and uh that's not the point of this conversation this conversation i've gone into that in other um so, so, uh, discussions but so the virtue practice for me is positive conditioning. It's about, it's, it's taking the best side of conditioning. I think, uh, I mean, I did a part of a psychology degree um, in my early twenties, uh, when I was about 19. And, you know, they would talk about behaviorists and Pavlov's dogs. And, you know, when, when people think of conditioning, they think of salivating dogs listening for the bell when their dinner's going to be served. And it's a bit kind of robotic and, conditioning almost is a dirty word you know because of this this uh kind of you know buddhist vedanta uh indian style spiritual practices of deconditioning yourself but this virtue practice is is how is it makes a perfect complement to that kind of going into the emptiness but uh creating this um you know conditioning the best aspects of human character um and, you know, the last thing uh, before I uh, hand over to you is that these virtues quite often make what are called the preliminary practices of, say, Buddhism or 
um, Christian or some of the, the Hindu uh, religions that you kind of work developing these, these virtues and then you get into what are sometimes called the secret teachings, which are more of these kind of, you know, you, you are God and you don't need to do anything and, uh, because you're all of this already. Um, very much part of the spiritual materialism of the West. We like to skip all the boring preliminaries and just get to the good stuff at the end. We think, you know, the I'll just take the, the, the secret teachings straight away because I can, I mean, there's something that ties in with the narcissism of the age and it's just, I'll just go straight there. And I've been as guilty of that as, as anyone. Um, and uh, quite often, you know, you kind of flounder around in that and then come back and think, you know, with your tail between your legs and say, right, I actually need to develop my character. Um, so here we are. We, this is what this, this conversation is about the virtues, uh, the seven classic virtues. So perhaps we could start by defining you know, saying what these seven classic virtues are uh, if that's sure well let's start with what virtues are oh, um, it's going uh, well just because people <laughs> yeah. you know virtues are what, good behavior i mean the, the, the sort of the common understanding in our uh, current you know secular postmodern culture um Virtues are, they, you know, I think that they, they carry some baggage as a term, you know, that they, they sound like they're uh, sort of um, pedantic duties, you know, or, or maybe even priggish commands, you know, like, like, you know, be good, like, there's just something stodgy about it, I think, in the minds of many people. Uh, something like our grandparents. Well, it's associated with um, uh, the, the, the spiritual community of Christianity. Right, the sort of the being a Christian um, for many people, uh, and and is taught in both Protestant Christianity and Catholic and Orthodox that is being virtuous is a part of the practice of faith. It's part of the practice of belonging to the community. Um, the reasons to be virtuous are supplied by other elements of the spiritual community. Right, that is sort of duty to God and doing God's will, and and all of these elements that help construct a virtuous culture. Um, that as we've left behind that culture, at least most of us, you know, are, are no longer in a, a kind of a Christian community, although I certainly want to honor uh, that. Um, I'm not a Christian. I'm not part of any organized religion. But at the same time, um, I can appreciate how virtues as a, a conceived of as a spiritual practice uh, really only uh, work, I would argue, when they're part of a when they they are part of a virtues culture, in other words, what the, one of the most direct ways that virtues can advance us spiritually is when they are uh, connected to a sense of community and, and an expectation and, and an admiration. In other words, there's being virtuous, of course, according to Aristotle and and many latter day. Uh, uh, virtues theorists is an end in itself, right? In other words, it's in your self-interest to be virtuous. Um, but for most people, um, the, the community of, of faith or the community of practice in which those virtues are uh, uh, sort of rewarded, expected, that they're part of the social agreement, um, that's where they have had their most effect on humanity. And so trying to extract those from a virtues culture um, can only get you so far because uh, it, it's it's really their their full significance for the self and for the community comes into play 
when there is an agreement around the 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 reasons to pursue a virtuous life yeah. right that those come from spiritual teachings outside the theory of virtues themselves so you know that this is this just before you go on, go on the, yeah. um what that makes me think in relation to this as a, as a spiritual practice that um the virtues culture of old school christianity is a kind of exoteric practice um and then what i'm i'm trying to bring out here is the esoteric nature of the of your of the self-practice of these virtues and as you say esoteric and exoteric work together they 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 integrate they work like this uh you don't want just esoteric or just exoteric they're dead on their own in a way and you bring them together something that we explore later is the charge that's created by polarities you know i think that's a really healthy thing to have polarities where sure so, right. the the energetic aspect of virtues and their connection to spiritual experience is really where I'm going, right? Mm -hmm. So these are just some preliminary remarks. So for people who are unfamiliar with uh, with any you know writing about virtue, it's important to lay just a couple of groundwork mm -hmm. items. So one is, I would say virtues are about your your character, right? So so a lot of people sometimes confuse the idea of of, of virtues and the idea of values. And, and, and even though these things are connected, they overlap, they're highly related to each other, it, it is important to allow some distinction. So one way of, of, of thinking about it is that our values are what we're striving for. These, these you know, the, the values like the beautiful, the true, and the good, um, these are headings for our advance, both, you know, in our personal lives and our spiritual practice and our hopes for our society. We want to evolve, we want to develop, and the beautiful, the true, and the good is a, is a sort of abstract way of talking about value that's that's both um, um, understandable but still comprehensive. So, but if, if values are headings or or sort of a, a magnetic pull of where we'd like to develop toward, then virtues can be understood as, as habits. They're really uh, they've they've been called habits of the heart, but the best way of describing them is as character traits that are sort of, um, you know, like you've mentioned the word conditioned, um, these are, are sort of grooves in your, your sense of, of right living or, or um, you know, right action that, uh, that, that are in some ways automatic, right? So to be specific, you know, courage is, is one of the classical virtues. And it's something, for example, that Aristotle writes about quite a bit. Um, and, and, you know, everyone fears but the courageous person is it has a character trait whereby uh, they can overcome that fear, where, where, whereby they're not in reaction to that fear. And there's, you know, there's a lot to say about courage. But when it comes to practice, uh, Aristotle makes this sort of tautological argument that um, you practice courage by being courageous, right? And so, uh, you know, it's not as if you think, okay, I'm going to go. I mean, you could put yourself in situations like in sports where, you know, you, you can't chicken out, right? You have to go through some risky situation and experience being courageous in the face of danger. That's certainly one of the ways you could perhaps practice courage if you were uh, interested in developing it as a specific virtue, but the 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 esoteric uh, sort of understanding and and what I want to emphasize is Aristotle, even though he elaborated uh, you know different virtues and whether the classical or the cardinal virtues of the Greeks, um, those are worth mentioning: justice, temperance, prudence, and courage. 
those were, in a sense, a, a, an ancient Athenian society, uh, what it was to be an excellent human. And, and then those were later expanded as virtues. The practice of virtues migrated or evolved out of ancient Greek philosophy, you know, um, through Plotinus and the Neoplatonists, and, and, and it became a fully incorporated into Christianity with the seminal genius of Thomas Aquinas sort of framing the seven classical virtues by adding to the four Greek cardinal virtues, the three what are called theological virtues of St. Paul, namely hope, faith, and love. And so sit for probably close to a thousand years, uh, those seven virtues, right, justice, temperance, prudence, courage, hope, faith, and love have been part of the, the catechism of the Catholic Church. And so, you know, not just in Catholicism, but, but in much of Western civilization, being virtuous was the main way that people thought about ethics and their duties and right living and right action. Um, and it was only after the Enlightenment that, that uh, philosophers sought to build uh, um, you know, a, a theory of ethics on a different foundation than virtues. And then just to recount the history, then in the 1950s, virtues in a sense were rediscovered through a secular lens, primarily because, or at least through the argument that, um, that, that being virtuous was a reward in itself, right? That it wasn't predicated on some uh, moral law or some universal duty or some theological teaching which uh, um, was argued to be no longer valid, right, in light of the secular uh, society of modernity. Nevertheless, virtues were sort of rediscovered um, as, again, ends in themselves and, and, and then now occupy a prominent place in uh, professional philosophical academia. And there's, there's many academics who've made uh, exemplary careers as being what are called virtue ethicists. But I would say that classifying virtues as a form of ethics to be compared and contrasted with, you know, Kantian deontological ethics or, you know, uh, John Stuart Mill utilitarian ethics, I think that that, that in a sense is, is a distortion. It distorts the essence of what, um, what this character development practice is at its heart. And so um, that's where uh, um, my thinking has, has been. It's important to say that, that throughout my you know, philosophical journey in life, I was never attracted to the idea of virtues. Like I said, they seemed kind of stodgy or some kind of remnant of Christianity, some kind of uh, moral duty that was just imposed right, by fiat and not something that would, could be discovered or was somehow natural. But um, I, as, as I've been working on um, this idea of value energy, which I will explain, um, that helped me appreciate how virtues are a, a very powerful spiritual practice. Part of me doesn't even want to call them virtues. You know, I want to call, talk about techniques of character development um, as, as a part, an essential part, I would argue, of uh, your spiritual growth. Hmm. So, so just building on that for a second, let me say, why be virtuous, right? What, what, is, what is this... Uh, this this admonition or this this advice about being a virtuous human um, and and acknowledging that those seven that I mentioned are there's nothing I would argue particularly special about those seven except for their historical pedigree. If we were to do an exercise to try to identify all of the concepts that uh, that we could classify as virtues, we come up with hundreds of concepts that are not part of those seven, and so it, it's. 
I'd say that the, if, we, if we want to try to understand a system or find a kind of a natural theology of virtues, then um, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't get hung up on the, 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 the catechism of the Catholic Church or the, the, the historical pedigree of these seven virtues. We'd, more, we'd look for the source of virtues in, in, in another location, and um, that work's being done you know, in uh, positive psychology, right? which is trying to understand what makes people happy. So um, in, the, in the little virtues online exercise that you pointed to at the beginning, uh, which in, invites users to create um, what I call their personal portrait of the good, um, I offer you know, 50 virtues that they could choose from. And, and, and people can, if, if those 50 don't, um, uh, don't supply the kind of the virtues that they think they'd like to practice or define their own growth by, and then people can write in their own, right? So there's, there, there's nothing... Um, sacrosanct about any of these word concepts. But, but what is, let me just say one more thing. Yeah, yeah, oh, what yeah. is really important is that being virtuous, pursuing your own character development is the key to your, not just your self-actualization, but your happiness. In other words, happiness itself, that, that you know, elusive human goal, I would argue, is the result of spiritual growth. You know, you're happy as a, in the aftermath of your spiritual growth. It's the result. It's not something you can chase or find on your own, but if you pursue spiritual growth, that's ultimately what's gonna make you happy and virtues are, are, I would argue, an important part of any uh, attempt to grow yourself spiritually. Mm. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, uh, just going back over it. Um, so when, when you say you've got like, 50 or 100 different suggestions for, for virtues they're kind of they 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 spin off of these seven though i mean it's like uh you know someone wouldn't choose set for their portrait of the good this exercise that you've got seven seven uh spin-offs of the virtue of love and that's their whole practice. It's like, okay, well, all I like is love. I don't really like self-mastery and those sort of things. I'm just going to kind of make seven, uh, go to the, the thesaurus and pick seven words that come after love and put them up there. So it's not entirely random because the, the another thing you mentioned in, in your book is that these seven uh, classic virtues are cross-cultural, that they're not, they're not simply uh, a Christian thing. Um, that there have been, you know, rough, roughly, whether it's six or seven, um, but they, they do appear across different cultures. Um, and I think that was some of the research done by uh, Seligman. And, um, and yeah, Martin Seligman makes that claim. Um, and I think I made that claim a little too strongly in the book, right. uh, following Seligman and, and, and Deidre McCloskey, who I've learned a lot um, uh, regarding virtues from yeah. her books. Um, I think that, that Seligman's project was to try to secularize the virtues, and, and I think that he, uh, uh, Martin Seligman, the founder of, of positive psychology, or at least one of the significant founders, um, he has, uh, in, in 2004, he co-authored co a book about character traits and uh, attempted to look at them from a purely secular point of view with the idea that um, your self-actualization depends on being virtuous. This was you know, going back to Aristotle's argument that the reason to be virtuous is not because you're commanded by God or you're guilty or the community expects it of you, although those might be good reasons, but the, the, for Aristotle, the reason to be virtuous is that it was its own reward 
it was uh, it was being an excellent human was really the 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 the, um, the secret to the kind of happiness that he uh, he advocated, which was eudaimonia, right? And the, the Greek word of of fulfillment, you know, or we might call it self actualization, but that term's got its own problems. But but the, the idea that um, that that as opposed to hedonic happiness or hedonistic happiness, um, that, that there was another kind of happiness and, and that involved not just your personal growth, but, but, your, but being excellent couldn't be, being an excellent human couldn't be conceived of as, as, as a person in isolation, right? You can't be excellent as a human in isolation because your, your self-actualization depends on your service, right? Your gift, giving your gift to the world, right? This was something that Maslow realized late in life that that pursuing self-actualization ultimately requires the pursuit of what he called self-transcendence or serving something much bigger than yourself that doesn't just redound to your personal growth, but to the larger growth of, of whatever community you can conceive yourself of as being a part of. But so, so I mean, this is almost a truism, right? That that service to something greater than yourself is ultimately necessary for your own self-satisfaction and growth. So this is this is a well-established principle in many different corners of you know the, the self-help world and the, and the spiritual uh, world of teaching. But um, the, the unpacking the more esoteric side of this, I think, starts with pulling back from talking about any particular concept or virtue or any virtue word. Um, I would say that um, that that undertaking virtues as a spiritual practice, uh, as a way of knowing, for example, that being courageous, that being just, that having hope, right, that being prudent, that these are all, uh, that, that as Aristotle said, there's only one virtue. So, so even though he was, uh, you know, he, he contradicts himself, and that's sort of a mystical statement that he doesn't really explain how, for example, temperance and prudence are, are different from each other, or, or justice and uh, love, you know, while there's certainly overlap between the two, there's times when justice can, you know, isn't necessarily the most loving thing, but it, it, it's the most virtuous thing in the circumstance. So these different ideas are, are can be understood as, as one when we begin to appreciate that virtues as a spiritual practice, I would argue can best be conceived of as a technique of tapping into spiritual energy, that there are techniques of perception, if you will, yeah. in, in, in the sense that as your character becomes conditioned, as you know, using your word, or as, as molded might be another word we can consider, but as your character develops, these virtues are like receptor sites for spiritual energy. In other words, that is there, even though, you know, there's, there's different, we could say that our, each one of our senses, the physical senses are receptor sites for outside information, but those, these senses are perceiving the same thing. And that is the outside world just in different ways. And so we could say something similar about um, the practice. That's why it's worth choosing seven, whatever seven you might choose, but just to so you can, it's a practice aid. You can put a stake in the ground and say, these are my favored chosen virtues, and I'm going to work on these seven, whatever seven they happen to be. It's, it's, it's easier to get your arms around than saying, I'm just going to be virtuous in a, in a general way and, and think that there's hundreds of virtues. It's good to commit to seven. And that's, you know, part of the, the, the why the, the catechism, you know, worked as a spiritual practice. Yeah. Um, but, but 
this is this is subtle. So let me just try to land this. Um, the spiritual practice of virtues, I would say all forms of spiritual practice are ultimately connected in, in a, a circle, you know, what we might call a hermeneutic circle, where each element of this circle is sort of necessary for the others. They kind of inform and display each other. And so the circle of spiritual practice is con inevitably connected to um, both spiritual teaching and spiritual experience. So in other words, you, you know, the, the validation of your spiritual practice uh, ideally, is that you have spiritual experience, which, you know, develops, feeds your soul and, and helps you grow spiritually. So the practice and the experience are, uh, are connected. And these both are also connected to this third element, which is spiritual teaching, some concept, even if it's the, the least conceptual um, form of spiritual teaching, I would argue there's no getting away from some kind of spiritual teaching if you, if you were to seriously undertake spiritual practice of some sort and, and receive uh, the spiritual experience that, that comes from that practice. So we, we need some kind of teaching. And, and because uh, uh, the secularists have attempted to extract virtues from any larger teaching and just sort of leave them in the secular world as, as some kind of just something you do for self-interest, like going out and exercising, right? It makes you feel better, you get some endorphins and it makes you more healthy and that's why you should do it. I would say that that's inadequate. And that's part of the reason why, even though virtues have been, um, even though virtues have been extracted from the, the context of their spiritual teaching historically, we need to find some kind of, in order to make a virtues culture again, which, which I, I said at the beginning that the, the individual practice of virtues and a virtues culture are, are really combined, that it's very hard for people to be virtuous if, they, if there's not a larger agreement you know, whether it's their family or their community or their church or their, you know, their, their, um, their sangha, right? However you want to define the community of, of expectation regarding being virtuous and the, and the recognition and the reward and the appreciation of people who are uh, able to be virtuous, who do have good character. Those people should be the leaders, right? Those should, people should be the teachers and the exemplars that lead the community by showing what being virtuous is about. So that, that virtues culture it, it, that's part of the reason why virtues are sort of in this theoretical no man's land at the moment, because they haven't attached to anything as of yet that we could identify as a rehabilitation or you know, something, a community agreement that was serving the same functions as these older um, uh, forms of, of virtues culture, which most of us, us have, have transcended at this point. So reestablishing the culture of it is important, and that means we need some kind of spiritual teaching to validate the practice and frame the experience, right? Back to the circle idea. And um, in my books, I argue that, uh, that, that, that the spiritual teachings of evolution itself, right? What science has revealed about our universe, right? From the Big Bang, you know, through cosmological, biological, and psychosocial evolution, that this presents a kind of spiritual teaching that we can read right off of the scientific record um, properly interpreted without a lot of metaphysical overlay uh, as to the meaning of the universe and our purpose of life and the, and the purpose of, uh, of development, right? In the larger scheme of things. So that's more than I can unpack here, but um, I would say that the, this, this understanding of, of uh, kind of natural theology of, of the spiritual teachings of evolution can act as a supplement to other forms. It's not a replacement 
for you know a, a, um, the, a Buddhist religion or a Christian religion or you know a Hindu religion. All those I would say forms of religion are lines of growth, and and we can rehabilitate those, even though we may have most of us may live in this secular world where we have transcended our you know our religious loyalties. Um, ultimately, if we're going to grow as as a um, as a society and grow as individuals, we, we need to find some kind of spiritual teaching that can create an agreement, a pluralistic open agreement that can accommodate and, and be supplemental to other you know more ancient forms of religious teaching, but that can nevertheless uh, point to why virtues are a authentic spiritual practice. The, the, the secret to human happiness, the secret to political functionality and, and uh, uh, social cooperation, and all these other goods, which we could certainly use more of at this time in history. Mm. So um, let me stop there. I'll, I'll say more, but let me just, you know, okay. let you get a word in edgewise here. Right. Wow. <clears throat> so um, a lot of the spiritual practices I've done over the years have been fallen in the kind of tantric category. Uh, which is very much to do with um, working with 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 energies, um, and so I'm kind of like you know thinking about what you're saying about value energy, and that these virtues are kind of like distinct flavors of energy that you if once you kind of you're sort of surveying the energetic landscape around you, you can feel these warm spots, you know where you've got um, courage, um, love hope, faith, some of these classic ones. And uh, just to prudence, um, you could describe as... Um, pr practical wisdom. Practical wisdom and sure. temperance as self-mastery. Sure, yeah, those are stodgy you know, words, terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I just try to carry them forward because I'd love to rehabilitate those words because yeah. they're good ones. Yeah, yeah, um, they are, yeah. But, they, but certainly self-mastery and um, practical wisdom are, are great synonyms yeah. for those two virtues, yeah. So, so the, these are kind of like distinct energetic currents that are part of the uh, human experience. And you can actually sort of feel the distinct um, character, characteristics of these virtues. And they are like currents that they have an ever receding horizon. There's no final destination on courage or, or any of these ones. Um, and once you kind of get onto that path, they, they, when you say they are uh, an end in themselves, to actually practice these virtues is, that is the result, the result is the practice. So it's a bit, you know, one of those cliches like uh, the journey is the goal, you know, once you start practicing, you're a fine, you're no longer a seeker, you're a finder. So you're basically kind of hooking into these um, handful of distinct energetic currents, which are a good in themselves. And to develop those, those character traits is to go, is to be pulled by the magnetic force of these energies towards their ever receding horizon. And sure. um, so one of the th things I'd say is that in a way that's a kind of journey into the unknown. If you're going into the, the mystery, um, these are good currents to follow because they, um, they've been tried and tested. Uh, one of the things you've said, which was was really important, is is that these are these are grown over thousands of years in an anthropological 
context. You know, this is not just some recently dreamt up piece of philosophy that we've all got to work out. This this is organically um, grown inside the human psyche, you know, uh, and that you know, so, uh, when you're doing sometimes we think of in these kind of old fashioned religions um, that there's kind of, they describe in great, direct, great detail, the destination where you're heading or something, you know, whether it's heaven or enlightenment and that kind of thing. And then kind of as people have practiced these over decades have kind of a lot of people that are, are honest uh, recognize that we're basically marching into this enormous mystery uh, that's kind of unendingly deep and the further into it, the less you know but riding these currents of virtue and the, the 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 energy that they carry um is kind of like um almost developing your soul I, i'm thinking of, I'm, I'm thinking of like uh if you're going out into space uh you need you put you you couldn't have this kind of body you need to develop some kind of other body to that's not that might be a silicon based body or something that can you know extreme withstand the extreme temperatures of um space you know and and those kind of things that when you're going into the unknown of the the great mystery of what this life is to yeah uh, to create a, an armor and a robust kind of soul or psyche or emotional sense of self and um these virtues deliver that and you in and in a way that you they're telling you these are good things to do but they're not necessarily telling telling you what the end result is which for me is a kind of turn off you know when people say you do you do this 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 and this and then you'll get this at the end of it i'd kind of rather be someone say well look these things are good things try them out see where they take you and the thing with the virtues is, uh, so I can just tie this in with the, the pandemic and all the things we've been living in recently, the 2008 financial crash, pandemic, we're living through Brexit, all these things. There's an enormous amount of uncertainty at the moment. And I've really found it difficult to find my moorings with the sense, I just, to make sense of the world at the moment, it's very, very difficult. But I know that I can rely... I can practice developing these virtues and that is always going to be a good thing. So whether I even, I know I, I don't understand anything that's going on and I'm utterly confused. I can, these are always there and they're always good things to develop. And they're actually relatively straightforward because we all understand what they are. That was quite a ramble, but I was kind of trying to bring out this, this sense of them being um, energetic things. It's a practice. It, it, in and of itself and it's um that it gives it gives you that kind of robustness to deal with such a confusing world i mean for, you know you've got all the mystical experiences you've got the breakdown of um institutions and collective sense making all that kind of stuff um these things are things that you can you actually tangible things you can hold on to that can keep you steady um in this maelstrom yeah, like a like a, a pole of truth, beauty, and goodness. You know, the, the, the virtues help you keep your grip, you know, mm. on on, on that that sort of most real thing in in the human experience. Mm. 
so but let me just riff off of what you just said yeah. a little bit um i think a good word to come back to is the idea of soul now uh, understandably many people who are buddhist practitioners reject the idea of a soul because it is at least i would say mistakenly um uh, thought to contradict the teachings of no self um but some of the more synthetic buddhist teachers like Thich Nhat han uh, actually recognize that this soul can be a valid concept, even in, in, the, in the context of the teaching of no self. And indeed, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has been criticized by other Buddhists for trying to smuggle the idea of the soul back into Buddhism. Mm. But, but the, the idea of a soul is certainly not, some people associate it with Christian teachings. But if you go back, for example, and read um, uh, you know, Plato's account of the teachings of Socrates, uh, right before Christianity, Socrates is a very well-developed idea of soul that connects directly to this idea of character and virtues, right? According to Socrates, when you act virtuously, it, it makes your soul bigger, it strengthens and improves and, and strength, you know, fortifies your soul. And when you act in a way that's con that, that, that is, uh, contradicts virtue or this anti, you know, vicious, I guess you could say, um, that that makes your soul uh, smaller, that, that it hurts your soul and makes it weaker. So this idea that you have a character and you can think of it not just as, I mean, character itself is kind of a stodgy word, you know, almost as stodgy as virtues. Soul, uh, at least in our, you know, contemporary English language milieu is a lot, I would say, sexier and interesting, but at the same time, it's got different kind of baggage, you know, coming from Christianity. Um, but, but again, there's, there's sources of the soul and teachings about it, which are pre-Christian and, and other than Christian. And, and I very much uh, um, agree with and think that this idea of your soul as, as in a sense, I would say that your, char that, that your character is a, a subset of this larger idea of soul, which includes other elements of your, of your spiritual reality. But if we were to say that, that um, humans can develop spiritually, some are more developed than others, thinking in terms of the, um, the, the non-physical, even transrational idea of a, of a spiritual, uh, I don't want to say substance, but a spiritual entity which lives inside of you, which is the real you, which might even be able to survive death in some way, um, that, that this building your soul, it, it starts to become, at least for some people who were able to you know, uh, appreciate that, becomes a, a way of connecting these virtues to spiritual practice. Yeah. But let me let me go on and say a couple of other things, circling back to what I said about the hermeneutic circle of spiritual practice, spiritual experience, and spiritual teachings. One of the ways that I've, I've really come to appreciate um, how these habits of the heart uh, are, are really practices of soul building, um, it connects to one of the central elements of, of what I mentioned as the spiritual teachings of evolution. And, and one of those teachings that I try to develop um, further in developmental politics, you know, my most recent book, is the idea that there's, there's an upward current of the good. Now, th this idea can be, uh, I want to be careful to try to distinguish it from earlier ideas of teleology, which have been effectively, um, uh, you know, disputed or argued against by many philosophers, you know, over the several, last several hundred years. Um, and, and any kind of new age notions of, of spiritual energy. When I talk about the upward current of the good, I'm talking about something that's completely evident for, from reading the record of, of scientific, uh, uh, the scientific understanding of evolution. And that is the thing that distinguishes life from non-life is that 
life has a purpose. It, that, 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 that all life is evidently pulled toward a primitive form of goodness, which is surviving and reproducing, right? Life is striving to survive and reproduce. This is its goal. It can fail in achieving this goal, right? Systems like, uh, you know, tornadoes or ocean currents, they may have a throughput of energy and be lifelike in their systemic integrity, but they don't have a purpose that they can fail to achieve. And so this idea that, that all life is being magnetized toward this primitive form of goodness, and that as life evolves in, you know, in the tree, biological tree of life, we can see that, um, that new elements of this purpose to survive and reproduce. So all of a sudden, um, animals, at least you know, the higher mammals, for example, birds, they start to care about their offspring in a way that they're, the surviving and reproducing goes beyond their own personal survival. And then we can see how this same sort of magnetism towards surviving and reproducing um, breaks through to a new level with the emergence of humans. So we share with our animal cousins our biological urges to survive and reproduce, but we also begin to awaken to, um, uh, to, to, to new needs and new interpretations of what the good life can be, right? As soon as our animal needs are satisfied, humans then imagine how things can be better in new ways. And as, as those horizons of improvement are achieved, then we, we wake up to new worldviews that, that expand the horizon of improvement. So there's within the direct phenomenology of human experience, for most people, it is this, this sense of being magnetized toward improved conditions. You know, and many people interpret these purely in material terms, right? They want to have a more luxurious lifestyle, or they want to have more time off, or they want to be able to travel more. In other words, they, they can conceive of making their life better, even if it's in, um, you know, some, something less than we might say is our ideal spiritual terms. But nevertheless, all of us can feel this pull of a better way. And, and this is that same, what I argue for, you know, in, in a way that, that is, is not going to be appropriate for a podcast like this, but this upward current of the good, I would say, is, is, a, is a, a thoroughly scientific, uh, you know, philosophical scientific interpretation of, uh, of, of what we can see in, in the record of life and human history. Um, there's something that's magnetizing us, something that's attracting us, and I call it the upward current of the good. Um, and of course, the good uh, uh, is like, is, is, if we were to think about this in, in energetic terms or, or like gravity, you know, like the good can be understood as, as uh, the plumb line of perfection, right? The way toward improvement, the way to incrementally perfect um, both ourselves and the world around us is to make things um, better. And, and that itself is, is, you know, magnified when we appreciate that, that the concept of goodness doesn't live alone, that, that it, it's part of a system of its own with its sister concepts of, of uh, truth and beauty. So truth, beauty, and goodness uh, have been recognized, you know, for millennia in many different uh, uh, cultural contexts as in some ways approximating the primary values. In the same way that, that there are primary colors, right, like on your computer screen um, with light, RGB, red, green, and blue, produce all the colors in the visual uh, spectrum. And we could say something similar about these concepts of the good, the true, and the beautiful, how they name this upward current of value energy, which it works on evolution from the inside by attracting the desire of consciousness, right? Beginning with the most primitive life forms. And as people grow spiritually, their ability to discern 
this upward current of the good, to feel the pull of the beautiful, the true, and the good, that the traction that that magnetism has on your mind and on your heart and on your will, um, that, that that is a, a very powerful way of, of naturalizing our spiritual path, of thinking about it. You know, uh, Emerson, uh, Ralph Walter Emerson is famous for the saying that every natural fact is a symbol of some higher spiritual fact. And so we can see in the physical universe that the electromagnetic spectrum is one of the most sort of fundamental and ubiquitous natural facts about our universe, that there's, you know, that there's uh, gravity and that there's uh, the, you know, light and, and, and magnetism and all these elements of the electromagnetic spectrum. Well, I argue in developmental politics that that is actually pointing, you follow, following Emerson's um, observation, that's pointing to the spiritual fact of, of value in the universe. That that um, that the, the opportunity to evolve and, and to grow spiritually that that this shares many of the same behaviors and properties that we see in the physics of physical energy, right? That the physical energy is in some ways a shadow of the higher uh, uh, truths about spiritual energy, and and um, again bracketing that term saying, and I'm not talking about a new age versions of spiritual energy, but I'm talking about the spiritual teachings of evolution and this magnetism of the good. So that relates to virtues, because in a sense, the beautiful, the true, and the good are like the, the magnetic pole. But the virtues, I, I, you know, you mentioned them as currents, and I would say, technically speaking, the, the virtues are, themselves are not the currents. There are the ways that we capture the currents, right? So if, if we think about the current of wind, then you have a sail on your boat, and mm -hmm. it captures the power of the wind and yeah. propels you forward. And we can say something similar about these practices these habits of the heart that are virtues is they act as sails that catch this upward current of the good and which can propel us in our spiritual journey. So yeah. there's, you know, obviously a lot more to say about that, but um, that's a chunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 No, I like that. Um, yeah. They're kind of, they're, they're, they're tools for, for growth. I mean, just simply that. And, and I, <clears throat> I think, one of the cardinal sins of um, sort of modernist thinking is to put your own subjectivity out there onto, you know, the universe out there in matter. And, and I think, yeah, I, un I, un I understand the point they're making, but I think there's something they're missing there that the features of your own internal subjective experience are features of the universe. It, you know we, you didn't we, we're not just we didn't just come out of thin air you know we are we grow out of this universe and our our, our these virtues and our, our our subjective experience of being awake and conscious you know they are characteristics of the universe because there is only one thing going on you know to use the logic of um you know secular materialism um and um so to these uh, aspects of, of psychology, uh, th they're human things, but they are also attributes of the universe by just default of existing. Um, and they are difficult to see from the outside. You know, you experience them inside yourself. And we, we're talking about them now. Um, you know, we both have an understanding of it and someone will be listening to this they can feel it inside themselves, but there's not like seven little dolls sitting on the table, which are the virtues, you know, 
Um, but it, what, I think one thing I wanted to say about this building the your soul craft, uh, it's almost like a, some sort of spacecraft, your your soul to sort of take you into mm. the unknown, you know, that that develops the strength to um, and robustness to, to take the knocks of the unexpected and the unknown. So, you know, if someone was listening to this and they were like, okay, well, you know, Steve's talking about building your soul and uh, when you die, maybe you don't die and, you know, you build this thing and it, it uh, helps you, uh, you know, after death. Uh, it just the, um, the psychedelic experience, if you, if you don't develop these aspects of your character your personality these these virtuous beneficial wholesome aspects of your character and you um you know take ayahuasca smoke 5-meo dmt you will get your butt kicked like you know the these are the ways to um and i know this you know having done that this kind of thing for a long time and uh, at certain times in my life neglected these virtuous practices uh you know, for example, um, about 10 years ago, I decided that lying was just a bad idea. Um, you know, it's, it's corrosive um, to myself uh, as much as, any, as anyone else. And uh, to just be as honest as I could be to myself and to other people. And, you know, j just that as an, a simple example, if you take that into, um, uh, you know, a, a psychedelic experience where everything's being kind of deranged and your normal reference points have disappeared. Um, you know, if you've developed some of these character traits, they help you in those situations. Um, and um, so that, you know, that's one of the, I wanted to just bring that out about this, 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 this soul creating some robustness that will serve you um, in mystical experiences. Um, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. So like, you know, that as psychedelics for, for many, especially, you know, if you want to go deeply into it and do what's called a heroic dose, you know, it can be an ordeal. It can be a crucible of testing, you know, of, of sort of, uh, uh, you know, testing your soul. I mean, to, to, to be yeah. uh, poetic testing, about it. Testing the strength of your soul. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost, I mean, if you think about it, you mentioned it, the concept of it as a vehicle, right? You know, a vehicle in the universe. It's almost like if, if you have a flimsy raft, uh, taking psychedelics is like taking that raft out to sea during a storm. You're going to get dunked, mm. right? But but if you survive, then you may have learned some things about the necessity of building a better raft, right? Or making your ship more seaworthy. Um, and so, you know, yeah, the virtues make uh, your soul more seaworthy. Now, maybe yeah. we could say that. You know, and those seven virtues are almost like getting in the cockpit flicking the lights on it you know it's like courage tick okay got to remember that uh practical wisdom you know practical wisdom might be set and setting you know for your uh psychedelic experience sure yeah. um you know love it, it, uh you know is, is a an obvious one trust uh and hope you know these are all things like hope check okay don't forget that they're almost like talismans you know that you can take in to those kind of experiences and it's like don't forget hope you know uh, they're, they're handles for your mind i mean these are mm -hmm. concepts right so yeah. their practice involves uh having having thought about them and and you know connected 
you know, how do you practice your determination to do something? Like, let's say you, you know, you want to uh, uh, raise your level of physical fitness or go on a diet or whatever, right? You've got to commit your will, your intention to, um, to doing that. And it's hard, but what makes you get up in the morning and, and follow your diet or, you know, uh, go for your run is that your, you, your will is connected to a concept that being more fit is going to, you know, redound to your health and to your beauty and to, you know, your, your success in the world. So practicing virtues is, is something similar, but, but let me bring in another facet of this. It'll hopefully make it more practical for folks who are considering this as a potential supplement to, you know, their other life of spiritual practice. And that is the, um, the, the attempt to naturalize the virtues uh, and so that they can stand alone outside of the admonitions of a spiritual community, right? So like, you know, within the Christian community or within, the, for example, the, the Confucian community, right? There are many uh, traditional religious uh, societies where virtues were a cornerstone of the religious community, but they all, like I said earlier, they, they all related to something larger. So, you know, doing God's will or, or entering the kingdom of heaven, right, within Christianity was the motivating factor to be virtuous, right? Or being, you know, loyal to your ancestors or, or thinking about, you know, your duties to heaven, for example, might within a Confucian setting might be, you know, reasons to be virtuous in that. So, so these larger reasons, when those are erased, then the, the attempt to try to um, reclaim why these are natural and not sort of dependent upon an external spiritual teaching is an important quest. And we mentioned Martin Seligman, they've tried, I think, and, and, you know, failed to do that because they're trapped within a secular perspective. But I still think that the, um, the attempt to systematize and naturalize the virtues is a worthy effort. And I think there's been some good progress made there recently. And I try to make that the foundation of this portrait of the good online virtues exercise in the sense that whatever the, the concepts that you choose to name the virtues that you want to commit to or define your practice by, that the naturalization of these is, is, is found not in these concepts, but in what the concepts point to. And this kind of brings us back to the idea of, of um, you know, not so much a duty, but a sense of responsibility. So uh, starting with yourself, right? So you, I would argue that, that we have a responsibility to ourselves, that, that, you know, that, that we have responsibility to treat our bodies, right, with respect and not fill it with junk food or smoke cigarettes or do other things that are going to damage our bodies. And we also have a, um, a, a kind of a duty that extends there from the duty that we have to be good to our physical bodies, it, it, good to our life plans, good to our careers, right? In other words, um, whatever your life plan is, whether it's, you know, being a hermit, you know, or a homemaker or a, a business person, or, you know, whatever it is that your path in life may be pointed toward, then I would argue you have a duty to try to do the best in that path, right? To be a good parent or to be, you know, a, a good leader in different ways. So this comes to the idea of, of what are your obligations? Because your obligations to yourself, to other people, and to something that's greater than yourself, whatever ideal of transcendence that you are magnetized toward, that ultimately, you know, again, for your own self-actualization, but also for this idea of self-transcendence, serving something greater than yourself that, that's authentically beyond your self-interest is a kind of an obligation for a, an excellent human, right? If humans who are striving to be excellence know that they gotta serve something 
bigger than themselves. And it could be humanity, right? It doesn't have to be spiritual. It could be the truth of science, right? There's many different transcendent purposes in life, higher purposes. Um, but, but I would say that just like every business needs an authentic higher purpose to be, you know, thriving and conscious, every person needs a, a, a coherent set of higher purposes. And those uh, uh, connect to us by a sense of duty or responsibility or obligation. And so if we understand that that we that there there are we could boil it down to these three basic obligations right the, the the responsibility that you have to yourself and your life and its success and its plans and its service a responsibility that you have to other people you know just as being an ethical person and following the golden rule and then this this idea that beyond just your service to others which can overlap right with your service to something greater than yourself and it is as, as I explained, you know, in the theoretical part of that chapter on virtues and developmental politics, these things overlap, but, but separating them for purposes of understanding that these are, are, are ways that we can conceive of the reason to be virtuous, that, that they're good for ourselves, that they're good for our relationship with others, and that they, they are the best way that we can most effectively serve whatever higher purpose we want to dedicate ourselves to, then, then that, that, that naturalization of the practice of virtues begins to come back to an idea that we talked about at the beginning and that these are receptor sites. So, so the, the obligation that you have to yourself is, is it's a two-way uh, form of spiritual energy in the sense that um, being temperate, right, not, um, uh, uh, not like, you know, being bad to your body, right? So temperance is often associated with not drinking alcohol, right? The, like in America, the temperance movement was all about um, the prohibition of alcohol, but, but the meaning of temperance as the definition of uh, one of the classical virtues has to do, like you said, with self-mastery. So if you have self-mastery, you're not gonna you know, eat, eat sugar all day, or you're not going to be a complete slob. I mean, there's, there's ways in which being temperate uh, it isn't just in terms of your physical intake. It's also in terms of it would be intemperate to, you know, watch uh, uh, 80 hours of television a week, for example, right? Or do things which are, are not good for you. So temperance is, 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 it taps into spiritual energy. It can motivate you to, to pursue self-mastery because that virtue itself, it, 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 by fulfilling your obligation you have to yourself, it also grows your soul. It also gives you the kind of spiritual growth that results in happiness or eudaimonia. So, you know, in the same way that, that a vigorous aerobic exercise gives you endorphins, you know, vigorous practice of virtues gives you eudaimonia, right? Which is this feeling that, of satisfaction that you can only have gotten from exerting yourself uh, in a rigorous way um, in something that, that is both good for you and, and, and good for um, your obligations to something mm. that's bigger than you. It's so like that, a, a, a virtuous circle, you know, like a, instead of a vicious circle, a virtuous circle creates an updraft. You know, it's just a, an unendingly positive feedback loop. That right. Grows. Well, it goes back to this idea of virtues as sails, which catch this energy or this upward current, um, which propels the growth of your soul and, and um, uh, magnetizes your ability to do good in the world, which are ultimately connected, right? In other words, the ultimate... Uh, uh, satisfaction or the ultimate eudaimonia producing activity is to, uh, you know, tangibly make the world a better place, you know, and that can be done by serving one person or it can be done by serving humanity, right, as a whole, but, but making, leaving the world, you know, in our short life, 
a little bit better by having you know brought more beauty, truth, or goodness into the world, um, and, and doing that you know in in an understanding which recognizes that virtues are an important part of giving your gift to the world. Um, these things start to connect and form a circuit and begin to give us an inkling of what Aristotle meant when he said that there's only one virtue. Yeah. Well, um, so even though there's, there's a, uh, they are common to all of humanity, uh, you know, this, this virtue, um, the benefit of, of being virtuous, what virtue, what virtuous activity or virtuous life looks like at, uh, in a traditional context, a modern context, or a, uh, a postmodern or progressive context, they look different, you know, so, sure. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a loving act might look different. So something that might be very loving in a traditional context might look completely unloving in a uh, progressive context or, you know, let, okay, let's say take a, 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 a let's say take an example. So the sort of modernist love of Apple technology and that kind of feel good, you know, you love your devices. Yeah, there's a real, you know, genuine sense of love there. That looked from the progressive lens um, is kind of like, well, that's just killing the planet, you know, and you've got people on slave wages grubbing around in the dirt to get these precious metals to build these things, you know, and then from a traditional context, you know, you look at that and you think, well, you know, this is, ah, um, uh, oh, what's that? Um, you know, the sort of the, uh, the work of Satan or what's that? Uh, Manon, what's the Mammon? The, the, well, well, God and, and Mammon. The, yeah. Right. The, That's from the Bible, the idea that you're either going to serve God or you're going to serve, you know, the, this, yeah. this grubby world. Right? You know, or, or, or that's, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, Rastas and Babylon and, you know, like all of that, it's, it's just that, that kind of, um, you know, uh, yeah, just poisonous. So could, could you talk about how, you know, cause that, that could be confusing to people. So they're like, okay, well, right. Virtues are good. There's these kind of like rough cluster of seven virtues, um, that, you know, just to, just to say what they are again, uh, what we said is, um, justice, temperance, which we can also call self-mastery, prudence, which you might call practical wisdom, courage, hope, faith, and love. So it's like, okay, there's this rough group of seven. Most people throughout all time have said these are good things, but then hang on, you know, this person loves Apple products, but I think that's, you know, the, the way of, uh, uh, you know, that's going to destroy our planet. You know, uh, this person loves, um, this person loves men. You know, so this man romantically loves this other man, you know, uh, but from a traditional context, it's like, well, do we throw that person off a stone wall, you know, or put them in prison, you know, cause it's not in the, it's against the Bible or our religious book, you know, so there's a kind of, you know, what do we do with that? Um, sure. Well, I could speak to that a bit. Please, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can start by connecting it to what we've been talking about uh, regarding the, the context of a community of practice or a virtues culture, wherein in the past, virtues worked. They were a, a functional part of, of uh, creating a, you know, civilizing people and creating a, a, a civil space where people could flourish. 
Um, and, and this has been part, we, we, we mentioned Confucianism, we mentioned Christianity, we mentioned the ancient Greeks. These were all, uh, we could identify them as, as cultures. And uh, according to the philosophy that I'm a proponent of, uh, consciousness and culture are, are evolving as part of the, the larger scheme of the development of the universe, right? I mentioned psychosocial evolution, and, and that relates to the idea that um, people continue to improve their definition of improvement itself. And so these, these uh, agreements regarding the horizon of potential improvement, right? What's the good life and, and how can we move toward making things better? Uh, these ideas cohere as their own kind of systems in large scale, historically significant worldviews. And so these worldviews can be seen, they can be seen through the research of de developmental psychology, they can be seen through an understanding of sociology and anthropology, but within um, uh, the developmental philosophy, you know, which is the, uh, you know, the area that I write in, we, we recognize that, that for the first time in history, you, know, you and I live in societies where there's more than one worldview on offer. Then there's you know, competition to a degree between worldviews, right? There's the traditional religious worldview that still prevails in, in much of the world. And in the United States, uh, probably 30% of the population continue to make meaning in a religious context, like an evangelical context, for example, that, that the, the teachings of the Bible and their religion create their reality frame. But then, of course, we see, you know, the emergence of modernity during the Enlightenment. I mean, it's, it's, it's this, this worldview or, or global community of modernism, you know, reason-based, science-based, uh, has, has been developing and evolving on its own for the last, you know, 400 years but it still coheres as an identifiable worldview that we can trace back to the enlightenment and which is uh, the majority worldview in the United States. And I'm, I'm pretty sure in Britain as well. And then in the last 50 years, we can notice this emergence of this, what we're calling the progressive postmodern worldview or something that's pushing off against modernity that rejects modernity and traditionalism and the kind of the old establishment truce between those worldviews and is creating a new kind of culture that seeks a more holistic and, and uh, compassionate um, and loving world, which, you know, in many ways, this progressive emergence of this, uh, you know, progressive postmodern worldview, it's the most evolved form of large scale culture that's yet to appear on the horizon of human history. So there's many beautiful things about it. But because it's rejecting the larger society, rejecting much of not only the pathologies of the previous uh, modern world, but also many of the dignities, many of the necessary elements, as I would argue, now that that's our arguments big and, and, and too much to unpack here. But what we're working on, what developmental politics, and I think what you and I agree about, is that there's something beyond the progressive postmodern worldview that's even more inclusive, right, that, that tries to go from the antithesis to a synthesis. That, that, that a worldview that's attempting to take the best of traditional, modern, and progressive and synthesize uh, those values or those communities of practice within um, a, a larger, more unified culture that can still you know, have a degree of pluralism and difference. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a sort of a reunification of the culture, but it is a larger container whereby human flourishing can be uh, defined in a way that includes, uh, includes the best of all three of these worldviews. So the community of practice of progressivism certainly is, is striving to create its own social norms 
and virtues are implicated in those norms of progressivism. You know, we can see the community of practice within modernity. It had a certain degree of, of its own emergent virtues, you know, like success and progress and, uh, you know, higher education. These are all um, uh, uh, virtues in a way or, or, or what it means to live a good life that you can see in, in, in co-ate degrees within the traditional religious cultures of antiquity, but which really, you know, modernity adds something. And yet, at least until the emergence of, of progressive postmodernism, modernity and traditionalism informed each other. In other words, modernism pushed off against religion and tried to break, uh, you know, the, the grip of, of feudal political power and, and the myth of a religious worldview, but yet it retained many of the agreements about what it meant to be virtuous from religion, right? So most modernists, uh, you know, in the last 300 years have still been Christians or Jews, and they've still been sort of informed by their, their religion. So there was a sort of a way in which there was both a transcendence of traditionalism by modernity and an inclusion of many of the teachings. But then progressivism comes along and, and sort of disrupts that truce. You know, it, it competes with traditionalism as the source of moral authority for modernity. And that's what's been roiling the developed world in this culture war. And so the, the beginning of bringing peace to the culture war, transcending the culture war, growing into a better version of ourselves, begins with this understanding of cultural development, this developmental perspective that can honor the interdependence of these major worldviews and the norms and communities of practice which enact the virtues which help define what it means to live a good life in these various overlapping cultures. So anyway, that's, that's a sort of a, a, a big conceptual proposition. Hmm. How this relates to virtues is that when, when we begin to understand that, that th these, these virtues are universal and then we focus on the virtues at the, at, at the, the theological virtues, right, of, of uh, originally uh, uh, kind of framed and popularized by, um, you know, St. Paul and later kind of systematized and brought into Western civilization by Aquinas and other virtue ethicists, you know, in the Christian tradition. That, um, the, the, that, that the, the focusing hope, on faith, hope, and hope, love hope, is worth doing. It's worth dwelling on those concepts for a moment. Hmm. So, so, so I was going to say that uh, just for those listening, but you said it at the same time, that would be hope, faith, and love. Right. Yeah. So uh, faith, hope, and love. I mean, so, so um, uh, you know, sometimes we hear it as faith, hope, and charity. But, but charity is an interpretation of the Latin word caritas, which is, I think, um, has scholars have, have come to an agreement that love is a better English word for caritas than charity. So, so faith, hope, and love. And of course, to many progressive folks, uh, faith especially is, is a tough one to swallow because faith evokes the idea of, of uh, conformity to some authoritative spiritual teaching or, or belief, a kind of magical thinking. That, that involves uh, assenting to a belief in something that's irrational or so supernatural that it, it conflicts with the rationality of a scientific worldview. So it, when we talk about faith, I don't wanna just leave that hanging. I wanna say what I mean by faith and how that can relate to someone who is you know, committed to a, a community of secular practice, for example. Um, and so, I would define faith as a, um, you know, it's related to hope, but it's, but it's distinct. And in the portrait of the good, I offer synonyms for this idea of faith, um, connecting it to this obligation that we have 
so back to this idea of, of you know you have a, a you have a um, uh, a duty to yourself, a duty to others, and a duty to something greater than yourself, and that especially the, the virtues of, of of hope, faith, and love, or their relative uh, adjacent synonyms begin to define an element of practice, which I say it's the most important to recognizing the virtues as a spiritual practice. And that is tapping into the, the upward current uh, that goes with your ideals of transcendence, right? So, so one transcendent ideal that I serve, that, I, that I'm dedicated to is the, the evolution of consciousness and culture, right? In the world and, and in America, especially. I like to help America grow into a better version of itself. I think that's a higher purpose. Um, that, that, that I think many can relate to, and, and how faith um, and, and love and hope, but faith especially, how that is an a very important part of tapping into the energy. In other words, rather than just thinking of that in an abstract way, like, oh yeah, we should help humanity. That sounds good, but I've got to make a living or, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm exhausted. You know, whatever, whatever reasons, valid reasons you may have, for feeling motivated or out of touch with the possibility of making the world a better place, that, that th this, this practice of, of, another word might be loyalty, but this, this sort of commitment that goes beyond your reason, even that goes beyond your conceptual mind, that the, the, the universe is good, that there is an upward current of the good, that, that, that it is possible for humans to make the world a better place, and that despite all the forces of decay, and, and you know the the potentials for disaster um, and inevitable regressions that accompany evolutionary development, uh, a degree of confidence or or conviction or a sense of of you know transrational certainty about these um, uh, the, these truths, right? That the truth, beauty, and goodness of, of the fact that that we are are in the world. And we have this uh, golden opportunity to make it better, right? We live in a world of trouble and suffering. So while we might, we, we can also hold the teaching of wise non-attachment, right? Or the non-dual idea that you're perfect already and you don't have to do anything, right? That's, that can be true. And it can be in a pol polar tension, you know, not, wise non-attachment, I think, as a spiritual practice is, is best done. It's value creating or spiritual growth creating capacity is brought online most powerfully when it's connected to its polar counterpart, which is loving engagement, right? Why is non-attachment loving engagement? They're like two legs, right? One without the other uh, is, is uh, not necessarily ideal. So, so, but if we allow ourselves to say, okay, loving engagement is part of this, and, and the, the, the most spiritually powerful kind of loving engagement you can, you can make with the world is to serve something that's authentically transcendent, right? Something that, that, that it's a greater than self-interest that redounds to the evolution of the universe and the betterment of humanity. That, that transcendent purpose is, it, there's an energy there. There's a motivating force. There's a wind that you can catch in your sails. And this concept of faith or you know, related concepts. We don't have to get stuck on that word, but I like it because it, 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 I think it's a word that we need to rehabilitate. A little bit like uh, temperance and prudence, these are excellent words that the synonyms don't quite, you know, they, don't, they don't quite penetrate into the essence of that. Yeah. So the essence of faith is a kind of super conscious knowing, a knowing that goes beyond what your reasoning mind can, can grasp. Yeah. And, that, and that as you practice knowing beyond what you can know, there's a way that you, you receive assurances. You receive um, faith as a practice 
um, uh, you know, as it's been known, not just in Christianity, it's emphasized certainly in Christianity, but it has much broader implications that, that it's, it's a technique of connecting to that which is beyond finite human understanding. And the mystery, as you said, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the lure of the mystery that, that, that tapping into that and feeling the magnetism of that lure is what the practice of faith is really all about. Yeah. And it's so crucial now because um, I was reading uh, Jamie Wheel's new book, um, Recapture the Rapture, and he was quoting some statistics in there that more people kill themselves now than natural disasters and wars combined. And in a way, that's, that's a loss of faith. That's, that's an inability to access faith in your own life and the kind of goodness of life in general. And I, and I think, um, you know, a kind of secular way to access faith might be uh, faith in the wisdom and intelligence of nature. Um, sure. You know, even if, so, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, people who think collapse is inevitable, social environmental collapse is inevitable. That on the other side of that, uh, nature will just keep building the incredible things that nature does. Um, and there's, there's something self-transcending in letting go of your own personal wishes, you know, for a harmonious future that sees us all alive in it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm going right down to the, one of the characteristics of sort of pro the progressive worldview is um, a, a, a kind of nihilism um you know they're like what's the point and you know they, they do have the the transcendent ob uh, objects are things like social justice and um uh, environmental um care um but it's sort of a, in a way everything else is seen as irrelevant and um pointless and and at the end and then there's this kind of um you know, there's a materialistic way of looking at death. Think, so, I mean, I, I personally think nobody knows what happens when we die. It's just an impossible thing. <laughs> if, if anybody tells you they know what happens when you die, I think they're lying. Whether they are, uh, you know, someone talking about heaven or somebody say scientific materialist view that you die and just that's it. I mean, it's like nobody knows. Um, so, you know, you can have, there's a kind of, so I, I've got another thing, I've, a term I picked up from Jamie Weir, which I like very much, which really speaks to my own kind of feeling around these things is, is a, a, a gnost, an agnostic Gnosticism that I really don't know what the hell is going on. But the, but the, the, the Gnostic part of it is I do have faith in this. And even if, uh, even if it turned out that, everything was fucked, you know, social upheaval, environmental collapse, when you die, just the lights go out, all of that stuff. Even if that was the truth, um, I can access a part of myself that's okay with that and has faith that that's okay, you know? Um, so I'm saying, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that even in the, you know, Camus and all that, you know, sort of this existential, nihilism and um uh you know even in that state 
faith is still something you can access. And I think that it's, this is something I feel that we're really struggling now with the contemporary moment is what to have faith in. Um, and because people can't access this faith, people kind of like go down to some very bad behavior <laughs> because it's like, well, what's the fucking point? You know, fuck you, fuck you. And, uh, you know, you're online, you just get into some Twitter war with somebody and, and it's just like, I'm just going to entertain myself with this because there's no point in anything. Um, so, you know, that, I, that really seems to be a conundrum um, of our age. And, and one of the things when you say about this post-progressive worldview that you and I are very interested in sensing it coming into being, I feel one of the characteristics of it is that where the progressive worldview is rather nihilistic and oppositional, contrarian, um, dystopian, that this post-progressive worldview, which some people are calling, um, you know, integral or metamodern, game B, those kind of, is protopian, you know? It's mm -hmm. like, so even if, even if everything is as bad as everybody says, so, I mean, I, I, something I think about a lot, I mean, I've got young kids, five and seven, you know, I look at the possibilities of social collapse, environmental collapse, and the only thing I know I want to, that I can take into that future are these virtues. And I, and as a parent, I, so much of my parenting is, and everybody's parenting is about teaching our children about virtu a virtuous life you know it's almost like we're 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 we're, we're showing them how to make these sales to catch these updrafts these currents and be like you know paragliders on thermals you know um sure. and so i think this kind of ties into you know we're heading into an unknown future what can you take with you and i think these virtues are Again, you know, it's things you can you can you can hang on to, but it's like, how do we rehabilitate faith for a postmodern progressive world that is, you know, very nihilistic? Sure. Well, what an excellent question. Um, one I uh, have definitely been thinking about for a long time. Um, I, I mean, the way we can help contain uh, the 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 you know, the runaway train of nihilism, right? The, the, this sort of cult of doom that more and more people within the progressive world, especially in environmental circumstances, many people feel like, you know, the humanity is doomed, that we're hopeless, that we, you know, we had our chance and we've blown it. And now all, all we can do is, is uh, you know, like we're, we're just the, playing our violin as the Titanic goes down, right? And uh, I obviously reject that conception. And, and I think, Part of the way we can, part, the best argument against it, or the best maybe defense against it, uh, uh, wiping out your hope and faith and, and other virtues that, that are naturally attached to that, um, is to see how um, the, the nihilism is a kind of progressive fundamentalism, right? So, so we talked about these worldviews. And as these worldviews emerge, they're all in the process of development in human history. And, and inevitably, as a worldview emerges and, and the, the values or the horizon of improvement that define you know, that, that worldview system, that set of values, as those uh, ideals begin to be achieved, then the problems that that worldview emerged to originally create, they try to find those problems in places they don't exist. They start over solving 
right? In other words, that 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 is even where the the the, the problems aren't there. There's still this kind of well, we have to keep exercising our values in that way, Douglas and that Marie, inevitably yeah. leads to a kind kinds of fundamentalism. So we see certainly people are familiar with religious fundamentalism, all kinds, right? Almost every world religion has a kind of fundamentalist version, right? We can also see modernist fundamentalisms, like for example, market fundamentalism, right? Like the market's the answer to everything. And, and you know, we just have to arrive, arise with a spontaneous order that comes from liberty and any other attempts, you know, need to be, that, that's a fundamentalism. And it, and it results from a worldview going too far in one direction. Right, bringing back another kind of sailing analogy. If we think about the, the, the evolution of human consciousness and culture by these worldview stages, every worldview can be understood as a, as a, a trajectory, like a sailboat. If a sailboat is, is sailing into the wind, it can't sail directly into the wind. It has to advance obliquely by tacking back and forth. Yeah. So each worldview is a sense is, is a direction that can only go so far before it has to tack back, right? To And there's this kind of dialectical path of, of tacking back and forth by which we can make an authentic advance, despite, you know, the headwinds of entropy and history. And, and yet we see when, when it's past time to, to tack, this is where the fund, fundamentalisms come in. So, so say, not only do we have just say on that, uh, Douglas Murray, who's a sort of English sure. sort of commentator, has got a really good term for that. He calls it St. George in retirement. <laughs> just no dragons left to slay, but just right, right. That's good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Not trying to find okay, so, so this progressive postmodern worldview, which we're conceiving as a as a, a, a historically significant stage of human development in history, likewise exhibits the same pattern of. Uh, emerging to make the world a better place in many important ways, right? Righting the wrongs of modernity, right? right? Trying try to overcome environmental degradation, income inequality, the ravages of colonialism, all of these negatives that occurred as a result of the emergence of the modern world. Progressivism finds its sense of transcendence and the opportunity to make the world a better place by by rejecting my modernity, by breaking out of modernity, by you know turning on, tuning in, and dropping out. You know, as as the phrase was originally framed when progressive postmodernism was first emerging. You know, in in uh, in the sixties, at least as a as a separate worldview that we could recognize in in dialectical separation with modernity. And so this this sense of of antithesis, the sense of rejection, the sense of there's got to be a better way, the sort of the breaking of the shell, you know, we're hatching out of the of the shell of modernity um, into something, a more holistic civilization that, that works better for everyone, right, that doesn't have all the, 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 the disasters that are becoming increasingly evident as, as a result of the rise of the modern world. That natural tendency, that sort of light motif of progressivism as it goes too far, right? As it inevitably goes too far, as all these other worldviews inevitably do, at least among some folks in, in that community of discourse, that, that we begin to see these fundamentalisms. And one of the fundamentalisms of progressive postmodern uh, is, is a, a sense of despair, nihilism, hopelessness, uh, you know, that we're all going down the drain, a kind of fixation on uh, you know the forces of decay that 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 completely uh, is oblivious to or walls off an appreciation that these forces of decay are also taking place in the context of the forces of growth. You know that that something more keeps coming from something less in the universe. And and while we may have to experience an a regression, like you know a new dark ages, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. But even if 
there, there is, um, you know, environmental disaster leads to a reset in humanity, regardless of the untold suffering that may come from that. And I'm, I'm, I'm not advocating that as, as a future, which I see as the most likely one. But, but even if that, that can still be conceived of in the context of this larger spiritual teachings of evolution, which is there's something rather than nothing. And that in this something, we see this growth of the beautiful, the true, and the good, right? The universe itself, just from the Hubble te te telescope, is immensely beautiful. Life is immensely beautiful. The beauty in human experience, you know, these are all ways in which, you know, spirit comes into our experience. And so the very experience of the beautiful, the true, and the good, and all of this, the sub-values that are part of that, you know, colorscape, if you will, a value, that, that that's a very, um, that, that, that the experience itself, back to this hermeneutic circle idea, that the spiritual experience of the beauty, truth, and goodness of the universe, can we, we can read right off of that experience, a spiritual teaching, which itself is then um, it, it, part of that metabolization or the learning and teaching that goes to that spiritual teaching is this practice of virtues and it comes back to faith, hope, and love as a way of tapping into this transcendence, which is a remedy for nihilism and despair, right? And suicide and, and all of the effects of losing touch with this upward current of the good. So one more word about faith. Again, if faith is a word that it's just hopelessly got too much Christian baggage for listeners, I can point to other ideas like, so for example, scientists, one of the ways that, that, that folks who are dedicated their lives to science, one of the ways that they have a kind of, 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 of faith in the transcendent truth that science is delivering is the, the faith that the, the universe is intelligible in the first place. That is a miracle, right? The fact that we live in this universe and that it can be reduced to, to or at least partially explained by mathematical expressions, that, that it's, it's a rational universe, that the puny human mind can nevertheless come to fathom in relatively large, I mean, we, we understand now that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. We understand that there's trillions of cells in our bodies. We understand so much about the universe because it is intelligible to us. And, and, and the fact that, it, that, it, that, this, that, that our intelligence can continue to discover the truth about the universe, that's a deep faith proposition that even scientists who reject the concept of faith on, on you know, anti-religious grounds are nevertheless practicing as a virtue. You know, for example, faith that what's true in this corner of the universe is also tr true in the far-flung corners of other parts of the universe, that, that truth is, is that there's a universal truth in the universe. That's not a scientific idea. That's a faith idea based on a connection to the transcendent nature of truth itself. And science's endeavor to find, discover, and apply the truth about the universe to the improvement of the human condition. So, so this idea that, 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 we, that there is a good, and it's not a static thing, but, it, but it's a movement, and the universe has been trending toward it, you know, albeit with you know, hiccups and regressions along the way, that is the, the, the sort of the rediscovery of not so much optimism, but the virtue of faith, hope, and love, these, these transcendent theological virtues that can um, energize us to make the world a better place and, and fight off the entropy of nihilism and, and despair and, 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 and reject the messages of doom and say, no, you know, we can and we will continue to evolve. And um, we have the power to overcome the environmental crisis. 
We have the power to overcome the meaning crisis. We have the power to continue to um, build a, a civilization that is more beautiful, true, and good. And this is our calling. And virtues are a practice that can help us fulfill our duty to that calling. Yeah. And cr crisis at any time in history always feels like the end of the world. You know, when you when you study history, there have been so many massive crises. Um, and, and, you know, one crisis, which is uh, was the invention of the printing press. You know, suddenly you had all these people producing pamphlets and disinformation started happening. And, you know, it's uh, and people were very, um, you know, the, the oral tradition was something very sacred. Suddenly people thought that they no one was going to need to remember anything because it was all written. And that would, you know, we sometimes, you know, we'd lose something of our humanity and it was all coming to an end. You know, so I think studying his, history really helps have have faith so i mean this is a secular this is a secular way to access faith that to study history see the crises that have happened and see people rebuild after the crisis something different uh that's new that they that you couldn't have expected before the crisis and there are it's just history is an unending list of these events and i think that can give you faith uh through but you know really looking at history is kind of not something people do uh really and, and a lot of it is so horrible that it's diff i mean i i was reading the gulag archipelago by uh the and i i actually i mean one of my favorite podcasts is called hardcore history by dan carlin it's about the history of warfare <laughs> and you know if you want to see you know that the, the bad things have happened that you know you that's all there but so i mean i'm no stranger to really really rough reading but i i got halfway through that and i just couldn't continue you know it was um too painful uh, I, I will revisit it when i've got a bit more you know strength to do so but you know i think that's just i, I bring that up as, as an example a very tangible secular example of accessing faith by actually studying history um sure well okay so let me let me um riff on that for a second one way of, of framing this idea of these series of crises which mark you know the course of human history is by recognizing that these are techniques of development if you will that, that another way of framing the, the idea of crisis is as creative destruction that creative destruction is is a, is a natural part of of the progress of human history. And so while there's some destruction that's just destructive destruction, right? That's just, you know, this part, this process of decay, but we can also frame it or, or at least look for an inkling of uh, where this, this, uh, this current of decay and entropy and the way things are breaking down, that in there are, are little uh, ratchet points of creative destruction where by the decay is, is also creating an opening for further growth. And it's it's by these you know successive openings for further growth, these opportunities for evolution and consciousness and culture, that we make the world a better place. So, but let me say something a little bit um, more uh, more along those lines, and that is, if we're trying to develop a virtues practice, and we realize that that our ability to be temperate or prudent or just or courageous 
is, you know, according to the, the virtues, theoretical thinking at this point, that, that this, these higher virtues of, of hope, faith, and love are, are um, necessary components, right? So, so justice can't be fully realized as a, as a virtue unless it's conditioned by faith, hope, love, uh, you know, courage, and, and uh, the other virtues. And, and so when we begin to understand that the, the, this, 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 the spiritual experience of virtues and the spiritual practice of virtues ultimately require or, or need to connect with some kind of spiritual teaching. So if we're trying to practice hope and faith, right, in the face of, you know, the crises of the world, this implicates this idea in philosophy known as the problem of evil, right, which is a thorny problem um, and which, uh, um, I mean, I read uh, Jamie Wheel's book too, and he just kind of waves his hand at it as if he knows better. And there's not this extremely fascinating body, world body of thinking about the problem of evil. I don't think he's read those things because he sort of dismisses it. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, that understanding the, the very beautiful and true thinking that's gone on in trying to deal with the problem of evil. So the problem of evil is framed as, if the universe is 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 good, if if there's an upward current of the good, or if there's a loving God, or if there's a benevolent source of the universe, um, then how can we live in this world of outrageous trouble and suffering? Right? How the 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 the, the bullshit of the world contradicts any optimistic vision of faith or hope because um, you know your your theology falls apart. Any any uh, arguments for goodness are are refuted. Uh, you know, on their face by the fact that, um, you know, babies are dying and we're destroying the environment and, you know, there's war and the Taliban and, you know, imperialism and and, every bad thing you can mention in the world. Some take that as a convincing argument that we should be nihilistic or or that, you know, talk about faith, hope and love or, or upward currents of the good. That's just happy talk. But that's just some, you know, um, um, technique of evolutionary psychology for us of, of sort of protecting ourselves from the, the, the horror of the world, which is the true nature of it. So obviously, um, some people have, 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 don't have answers for those charges. Um, and I think that, there are, that, that many of the, of the beautiful thinkers who've addressed this have come up with some very convincing ways of framing that or countering that or defeating Right, the 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 point the point of, of nihilism about the world being horrible, um, and and I write about this in the presence of the infinite, my 2015 book, a little bit. Although you know the the dealing with um, the fact that we live in this world of trouble and suffering, and and that things are not being taken care of, that that's a giant subject that you could spend your entire career writing many books about. But but going back to this idea of the soul and and the potential of survival after the soul, even though we may not know, I certainly don't claim to know what, if there's an afterlife. I have faith that there's an afterlife. And, and I think that there's lots of interesting pieces of evidence, near-death experience being one of them. We just recently talked about in the New York Times. There's, you know, the, if you look into what's actually there in this body of work, it's very hard to explain it away, right? And materialists feel the sting of that, the evidence of, of the, the thousands of people who've had near-death experiences and report almost identical experiences, they've tried to explain that away because it, it's subversive to their materialistic worldview, right? So they're threatened by it. Um, but I would say that, um, that if we allow for the concept of an afterlife, then that can um, elegantly explain the fact that we live in this world of trouble and suffering, 
because the experience of partiality, the experience of being in the finite, the experience of being pulled to a better way is contingent upon us being imperfect creatures. You know, that, that we're, we, we, we're evolutionary creatures. We're ascending creatures, I would argue, and that our experience of the evil and the horror of the world is a way that this sort of grounds us. It's sort of like, if, if we're going to contribute to, you know, the, 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 um, the perfection of the universe, the evolution of the universe, the, the, this, this grand narrative, this story of evolution, if we as agents of evolution have a role to play in this story, then ideally, you know, we, we, we're part of the ascension itself. We're part of this progress in the beautiful, the true, and the good. And the, the extent that we're born as, as, you know, animal creatures in a physical world, and we're, we're halfway between an animalistic existence and a, and a more perfect utopian existence, we're groping our way toward that. The, the experiences of this partiality, which we can conceive of as evil or trouble or suffering, that this in an afterlife becomes a, a gigantic gift, that the inventory of our suffering, if you will, that the experience of suffering in this world, both our own suffering and our empathy with the suffering of others, that that allows us to experience heights of bliss, of, 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 of degrees of goodness, truth, and beauty that we would never be able to experience as spiritual experience if we hadn't also had direct contact with the opposite of that, right? Mm -hmm. so, so the world, we can still situate a world of trouble and suffering in a, in, a, in a universe that we can conceive of as something you know, along the lines of a benevolent universe um, without resorting to a childish faith if we begin to recognize from a developmental perspective that there's more to this world than um, more to this universe than our experience in this life. Yeah, and I think um, if somebody wanted a direct experience of that that didn't require some faith, a, a large dose of psilocybin mushrooms or uh, ayahuasca contemplate the question of evil in that state, and it does make sense. And and I I mean I can say from personal experience, it you know. The horror of life is something I've been obsessed with since I was a kid, you know, and it's just it's bothered me continuously my entire life. Um, and um, it's something I've contemplated, you know, gone right, gone into in great, uh, you know, great depth in psychedelic experiences. And there is an answer there. And I, can't, I mean, you know, it does not make sense talking in this way i mean you can't describe that but um it well is we could try it might make a good capstone on the uh, on the <laughs> podcast um in other words uh we could start by observing that um that that secular modern medicine in america have begun to experiment with uh, the, the medicinal use of, of uh, uh, ther the therapeutic use of psychedelic experience, right? So mm -hmm. uh, one famous experiment was there was a bunch of terminal cancer patients, right? Who, who, whose diagnosis was definitely terminal. And, and these cancer patients near the end were given um, you know, a, a controlled uh, therapeutic experience of, of a psilocybin journey. And that almost every one of them said that, that it was a profound spiritual experience, among the most profound spiritual experiences of their life, that they no longer feared death, that they knew there was more, that, that, that this sense of, of 
just laughing out loud love. You know, just, the universe is just loving. It's just, it just blows away any of our human concerns, you know, in, in that experience. That's a pretty powerful testimony to the fact that, um, you know, that, that these higher states of consciousness reveal uh, these reasons to have faith, hope, and love, and that we live in a, in a universe of good, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And beyond any of these clinical experiments, I can certainly testify that in the various journeys that I've had, um, for example, one of the most confirmatory uh, um, fortifications or tonics for my personal faith was the experience of the 5-MeO-DMT um, in the 15-minute outside of time and space experience that goes with that. Um, I was so reassured of, of the truth of love, the truth of faith, the truth of hope, the truth of the beautiful, the true, and the good. It, I was just bathed in it in a way that, that made it so evident to me that, that, that is the, this, this teaching that I received from that um, transcendental experience, um, you know, I can remember it to this day, like it was, you know, I, I had it last, you know, an hour ago, because it's so vivid and so permanent and so um, uplifting and conditioning of my soul and, and my soul's, you know, senses, which, you know, are a sense of these virtues that psychedelics have definitely been a big part of, of the, the grounding of my own faith, because in these um, hyper lucid states of knowing, I've received deep levels of assurance that, um, that these objects of transcendence are real and that the, the universe is indeed um, a, about uh, beauty, truth, and goodness. Yeah, and uh, you know, the thing is, is that people who would listen to that and think, well, that's just a load of bullshit, usually, <laughs> usually are people who have never done that you right. know so it's um it's something that ken wilbur talks a lot about uh you know about when people say meditation doesn't work you know it's like well if you're going to be scientific about it and prudent um do the experiments and then see for yourself you know it's like don't take my word for it you know it sounds like nonsense when you talk about it in you know 3d space with binary language and all that stuff um and um i mean i'm not i'm not recommending that everybody go out and take psychedelics there's definitely people who are it's contraindicated uh so you know i'm not i don't want anyone to be listening to this <laughs> think right okay uh you know it um, but it, it's one route and i think i think uh certain meditation practices uh, are also very uh effective in particular um practices that uh where you learn to let to not believe your thinking basically to just completely let go of concepts um there is also a resolution uh, of this kind of like thorny issue uh in that state too um so there, there are different ways to to access well, let me let me just in a friendly, respectful way disagree with you a little bit mm. and say that you don't need to take psychedelics or have another kind of altered experience to to validate um, the the truth that we live in a universe of, of goodness, truth, and beauty. Despite you know the problem of evil, I think we've just spent the last two hours talking about the the way in which that those truths show up in a rational context, mm. you know, in a, in a mind space that isn't you know in a transcendent psychedelic reverie yeah, yeah, yeah. um there, there's plenty of reasons that um that 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 we can see that that validate these propositions of 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 virtue and value and and goodness 
And I would say that those who think, oh, that's a load of bullshit, that's a kind of fundamentalism. It's a modernist fundamentalism, right? So reason and science and skepticism can take us a long way. But if you, if you don't tack back and allow for a more holistic understanding, then you're trapped in a materialistic fundamentalism that thinks any talk of, of goodness or values or virtue is bullshit. So I would challenge people who think that way to say, look at your own fundamentalism and you're, you're just as big a fundamentalist as somebody who thinks that the world was created in six days, right? Or that the Bible is inerrant or, or some kind of progressive fundamentalism that thinks that we're doomed and that there's no hope. I think that a part of our duty as being practitioners of virtue is to recognize these fundamentalisms and steer clear of them because yeah. they're dead ends and they inevitably result in some kind of nihilism. And I think, I think, you know, another helpful thing people can do to understand this sort of thing is to learn about uh, confirmation bias and some of these cognitive biases that, you know, if, if you are, if you feel emotionally nihilistic, it doesn't matter what evidence you, you know, so you say we've been talking for two hours about the goodness, truth and beauty that's evident in the universe and in life, human life. And you can just all day, it's, you know, present evidence to somebody who has, uh, you know, this nihilistic confirmation bias, and they just won't see it. So, you know, I mean, it, uh, that, that's that is one of the characteristics of being trapped in a fundamentalism, that there's no argument that can help you. Know, you can't you can't break the spell of the fundamentalism with an argument. You've yeah. got to have some kind of, uh, of, of, of awakening experience to grow out of it. Um, and that's true for you know, traditional fundamentalisms, modernist fundamentalisms, and progressive fundamentalisms. And I think part of the way that happens is it, eventually you you hit the dead end of it. I mean, so um, someone I very much respect is called Majid Nawaz. Uh, he's a British Pakistani guy. He was uh, an Islamist, um, and uh, you know, spent four years in jail in Egypt, and he he basically hit the dead end of Islamist um, ideology. And then as you're saying the tack, that, that kind of changing course of the, you know, with the boat happens, you know, it's like, it, it, it just hit the end of it. Okay. When it think it, you know, it reached the end of the earth in the boat, you know, as over the flat earth, uh, I, you know, idea, you're sort of about to sail off the end and then managed to tack back and, um, so in a way, it's like perhaps the further you, if you go, if you go really, really push further and further into nihilism, as far as you can go without actually killing yourself, there's probably going to be some kind of turning point, you know, where, where there might be some other direction. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to just talk about was this portrait of the good. So it's, 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 uh, it's an exercise that's on your uh Institute for Cultural Evolution website. Right, right. So that the, the URL is culturalevolution.org. Yeah. It can also be accessed by our new um, political website, the Post Progressive Post, and that's post-progressive.org. So either of those URLs will get you to um, a variety of online exercises, right? So we have a, a worldview uh, questionnaire. Um, we have a, a, a test, are you post-progressive? That's kind of a political self-evaluation. And then we have this portrait of the good, which I think is, is the deepest, the one which is most connected to spiritual practice. And uh, it, it, just to describe it, you go there, you, um, you're asked, you're brought through a series of questions, and you're asked to um, 
to, to identify what you really want, you know, happiness, self-actualization, self-transcendence. You're asked to choose between seven potential concepts of your ultimate goal in life. You're asked to list, you know, just first names of, of the people that you love, and then maybe some concepts of that which is greater than yourself, that which you'd be willing to sacrifice your self-interest for. And then in that context of thinking about what's transcendent, right? What do you owe to yourself? What do you owe to others? What do you owe to something greater than yourself? You are then um, given a questionnaire of, of, of uh, choose between uh, uh, 49 um, virtue concepts. And as you go through the questionnaire, you're building this PDF. You showed a, a, a printout of it. Um, and, and that that comes to you as a, uh, a high quality PDF, which you can print out and put it in your refrigerator. It becomes like a practice tool. You know, these are it's sort of a mnemonic device for remembering your commitment to that which you feel is 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 the, the stake in the ground that you want to the concepts you want to choose to be the seven virtues that you can remember, that you can talk about with your friends over dinner, that you can you know refer to on your refrigerator, and that can become like a little voice in the back of your head. You know, like I sometimes think, you know, when I, my ego is offended, I want to be petty. And, and I can hear my mother's voice in the back of my head saying, that's not who you are, Steve. You're not a petty person. You're not going to take revenge or be nasty to somebody just because they, you know, dissed you. And, and that's just an example of how these, these things become habituated. They become habits of the heart by just being with them remembering them, right? Inculcating them into your heart and your mind, and most especially your will, right? You're determined to be courageous. You're determined, you know, to have hope. These are, are ways that um, the practice of virtues not only grow our soul, but give us a kind of, um, a, a kind of cell membrane that can protect us from, you know, the, the slings and arrows of our outrageous world. So people, it's about, it takes about seven minutes to do the test. And it's fun, I would argue. And uh, so I can invite listeners to um, check out the portrait of the good at culturalevolution.org. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll give a concrete example of, you know, how this has impacted my life. Um, I, I, this morning, I woke up at 4 a.m., bright as a button. It's kind of full moon, you know, can go back to sleep. Woke, it got up out of bed, you know, with the kids when they, you know, of course, they wanted everything in the morning. And I was feeling pretty sorry for myself. I looked, so I keep this um, on my fridge, as you know, what you recommend. And I just looked at my portrait of the good. And I just kind of fell into the different virtues that I put there that resonate with me. Um, and I kind of, I found on different days, different virtues stick out. So, you know, it's like what you can, I can feel the virtue that's going to, that's going to help me today, you know, um, and uh, so of the virtues I had there was gratitude. And mm. I just felt, you know, I, I feel like utter crap at this moment, but I can still be grateful for being alive, you know, and then suddenly I started, you know, like, wow, I'm alive. You know, I've got a, a good friend now who's got stage four cancer you know, he's going through his second round of chemotherapy. And I was just like, you know, uh, that's not happening to me right now. I'm here in my kitchen with my kids. I can be grateful. For, you know, so it's just, and then um, that really helped turn around my mood in the morning because I realized I, I was committed to that as a virtue, you know, being grateful for being alive. Um, and, and they work you've talked about it earlier in this conversation that these virtues they potentiate each other 
you know, they kind of work in this synergistic fashion where, you know, gratitude will, uh, you know, once you, you sort of zero in on, on the feeling of gratitude, that gives rise to a feeling of love, you know, and then, um, uh, you know, desire to cooperate with life and with people and, you know, and, and then it's like, oh, you know, how do I what do that? It's to common sense, you know, what can I use my common sense to do that? And like, oh, uh, you know, I feel a bit, a bit worried about cooperating with that person, but then I it's like, okay, courage. Well, I'm just going to have to be courageous about it. And uh, I'm just going to trust this virtue practice, um, you know, and they, that, that's just a little kind of vignette of, my emotional journey this morning just from looking at that and it really helped create the updraft out of my you know funk as I was dealing with all the plaques in my brain that hadn't been washed out with the deep cycles of sleep yeah well a great way of describing it that's a, a very concrete and inspiring uh, uh you know story of how you can practice the virtues yeah so I really recommend people do that. And you've even got on your website um, 10 different ways to practice these virtues and flesh them out, um, which I won't go sure. into. Sure, some suggestions that people can help uh, habituate themselves to the virtue concepts that they choose to practice you know, and, and make as part of their practice. And, and again, I, at the beginning and throughout, I've, I've tried to emphasize how the, uh, uh, um, a culture of virtues is, is really what's necessary for the practice of virtues in their full. Like, so we can, as individual practitioners, pursue them, and, that, and that's worth doing on its own. But to the extent that we can create social norms that, that recognize and, and create expectations for these kind of virtues, then we'll really be maximizing the evolutionary potential of, a, of the spiritual practice of virtues. So just this podcast has been a, you know, an incremental step in helping to um, to create a culture of, of virtues within this post-progressive, uh, you know, integral world space, which you and I are part of, this new worldview that's emerging beyond progressivism, I think one of the ways that it can come into being and have its effect on human history, its evolutionary effect, is by reclaiming um, not just optimism, but also uh, the practice of virtues uh, itself and the culture that goes with it. So um, I thank you for your interest and for our work today in, in, yeah. in you know, making progress in that direction. Yeah. Um, and is there, is there any, anywhere else other than the, the uh, Institute for Cultural Evolution that you would point well, to? Well, sure. I mean, I can you know, plug my book, Developmental yeah. Politics, right? Uh, available on Amazon. Um, and, and there's my author website, stevemackintosh.com, has extensive excerpts from the book, including some excerpts from the virtue chapter. So folks who are not inclined to buy a book can uh, access much of, uh, of the thinking and, and in this exercise that we, we talked about. But um, uh, th this, this, um, this, this emergence that's occurring now, this, this emergence of this new worldview is bringing a new, if you will, an octave of uh, goodness, truth, and beauty, a, a new phase of these values, a new expression, a new set of opportunities that go with participating in um, a, a new emergence in history. And so I invite people to investigate the philosophy and do the practice of that, which is learning and teaching it, um, you know, reading the books and doing the exercises and familiarizing themselves with this um, extremely exciting emerging uh, new phase of human history. Yeah, awesome. Well, Steve, 
Thank you so much. We we have broken my own personal record for the length of a podcast going over <laughs> two hours. Yeah, well, there. it was, I think, lively throughout. I'll look forward yeah. to, uh, to listening to it uh, once you get it posted. So, uh, Steve McIntosh, thank you so much for sharing your uh, your wisdom uh, with us. And as you say, I mean, I feel that this is this podcast is a contribution to creating that culture of virtues out there and you know uh, people taking it it seriously and realizing the potential for um creating a, a wholesome and virtuous humanity and let me thank you for for creating this podcast on spiritual practice it's an honor of me uh, honor of mine to participate in it and and let me commend you for your own truth intuition uh, you know, among all the, the different teachings and, and propositions of truth out there in the world, um, it seems to me that you have an excellent um, nose for where the leading edge of it is. And um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's uh, in this context of you and I together that we're um, exploring this. So um, good on you for uh, understanding that spiritual practice is really uh, the heart of how we can make the world a better place. I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cree.